I took the belief-o-matic quiz again last week. Do you know about belief-o-matic? I quote from the beliefnet.com website. <clears throat> Even if you don't know what faith you are, belief-o-matic, trademark, knows. <laughs> Answer 20 questions about your concept of God, the afterlife, human nature, and more, and belief-o-matic, trademark, will tell you what religion, if any, you practice or ought to consider practicing. Warning, I continue to quote, warning, belief-o-matic, trademark, assumes no legal liability for the ultimate fate of your soul. <laughs> Lest anyone be in suspense about the ultimate fate of my soul, I'll tell you right now, I scored the same as I did when I last took the quiz over a decade ago, 100% Unitarian Universalist. <laughs> which came as a relief to me as a UU minister. <laughs> the belief questions range from the sublime to, if not the ridiculous, then at least the peculiar. The first question is fairly typical. What is the number and nature of the deity? God, gods, higher power, choose one, one. Only one God, a corporeal spirit, has a body, supreme, personal God, almighty, the creator. Two, only one God, an incorporeal, no body, spirit, supreme, personal God, almighty, the creator. Three, multiple personal gods or goddesses regarded as facets of one God and or as separate gods. Four, the supreme force is the impersonal ultimate reality or life force, ultimate truth, cosmic order, absolute bliss, universal soul, which resides within and or beyond all. Five, the supreme existence is both the the eternal, impersonal, formless, ultimate reality, and personal God or gods. Six, no God or supreme force, or not sure, or not important. Seven, none of the above. <laughs> Many of the other questions are shorter, if not easier. Question number six, Satan's presence results in much suffering. Answer, agree, disagree, or not applicable. You gotta love that not applicable. That sounds like the UU response, don't you think? I don't think Satan exists, but if he does, that's cool because he's not applicable to me. <laughs> there are also questions about social justice, abortion rights, and homosexuality. My friend Kat Liu at the Unitarian Universalist Association thinks that no matter what you tell belief about God, Satan, and the afterlife, if you're in favor of social justice, abortion rights, and homosexuality, they score you 100% Unitarian Universalist. <laughs> Personally, what I found most challenging was not the substance of the questions themselves, but the little follow-up question they posed after each, after each choice. What priority do you place on this selection? High, medium, or low? That stumped me every time. Let's see now, is there a God or not? Sounds like a high priority, yes? Is Satan running around trying to kill me? What, that's a low priority? So I ended up telling belief that to me, gay rights is a higher priority than whether Satan is trying to kill me. <laughs> Which makes me a 100% Unitarian <laughs> Universalist. But what I was trying to tell belief is that arguing about God or Satan or metaphysics is usually a waste of time. Defending gay rights 
is never a waste of time. I mean, what could be more important than God? Now, for me, that's an easy one. Love. Love is more important than God. I I guess that's blasphemy, but not to me. The God I worship is love. But if someday, somehow, I came face to face with God, I've actually thought about this, and God said to me, I am the Lord thy God, and I am the God of hatred, of vengeance, of cruelty. I would say, um, God, uh, I wonder if you could help me out because I've obviously gotten off at the wrong universe. And I'd really appreciate it if you could take just a moment from your hatred and vengeance and cruelty to direct me to the love universe. Because that's where I'm going. That's my home. Now, I have a high degree of confidence that the scene I just described is never going to happen. Because I believe that this is, this is the love universe. And this incredible, beautiful, broken earth is the love planet. We just have to work really, really hard to make it so. A virulently anti-Muslim film, apparently produced by a man previously convicted of bank fraud who claims to be a Coptic Christian, sparks violence in more than 20 countries, several deaths, hundreds of injuries. Meanwhile, in oh-so-civilized Sweden, An intoxicated man falls off a subway platform and is knocked unconscious. A bystander leaps from the platform, but instead of assisting the injured man, robs him of his valuables and leaves him to be hit by the train. But for every act of violence and vitriol that seizes the headlines, a thousand acts of kindness and generosity go unreported because they are unremarkable. I believe that love is our essential nature. But paradoxically, to most of us, love does not often come naturally. Most of us are so wounded, so fearful, so judgmental, so critical, so angry, that it takes effort to love one another let alone ourselves. There are, of course, some people to whom love does seem to come naturally, people who, no matter the vicissitudes or aggravations or tragedies of their lives, are always kind, patient, and compassionate. These people are called saints, I haven't met any in this congregation, and I certainly don't see one when I look in the mirror. 
For the rest of us, love is a discipline. Last week I was reading a book on church planning and it said something that brought me up short. Every religion, it said, involves disciplines like prayer, fasting, and observing holy days. Well, of course, plenty of Unitarian Universalists don't do any of these things. And I wondered, what is our discipline? And then I realized our discipline is how we treat one another. Love is our discipline. Like the words disciple and discernment, the word discipline descends from the Latin discera, which means to learn. Like any discipline, love's purpose is not to confine, but to liberate. Love frees the soul from the lazy and destructive habits of resentment, hatred, and fear. There is so much power in the words we recite every Sunday, in covenant with one another and all we hold sacred. We answer the call of love. We don't promise always to be loving. That would be superhuman. But when love calls, we promise to answer. And love calls again and again and again. Our discipline must be to answer again and again and again. The covenant of right relations we spoke this morning is an aid to the discipline of love. Like any covenant, our covenant of right relations is aspirational. It's a declaration of intention, not a list of rules. But it provides direction, as sure as the North Star. To acknowledge and celebrate our differences, to listen compassionately, speak respectfully, and take responsibility for our actions and feelings. To speak from personal experience, use I statements, and avoid judgment. To deal directly with others to resolve conflict. To strive to stay in relationship through conflict. To admit our mistakes. To assume the good intentions of others. Notice the repetition of the word conflict. No covenant will prevent conflict, nor should it. Conflict happens when different opinions are present. This is a good thing. The problem arises when people in conflict begin to distrust and demonize each other. That's when remaining in relationship, trusting in others' intentions, listening compassionately, and admitting our own mistakes demand discipline. 
otherwise the centrifugal force of injury, ego, blame, and self-righteousness can sunder the community. During the four years I've been your senior minister, our congregation has experienced at least four major conflicts involving the coming-of-age youth, the Israel-Palestine controversy, the Tuesday Meals program, and most recently, the Stebbins Gallery. In each of these conflicts, feelings were hurt. Accusations and recriminations were exchanged. Some people left the church, but most stayed. People will do what they have to, and sometimes relationships become broken beyond repair. But the covenant of right relations and the call of love invite us to undertake repair work beyond what we think or feel may be possible. It's like a wedding vow. We all know divorce is available. But the wedding vow makes us work harder, dig deeper, and let go of being right in order to preserve and nourish the relationship. Love always calls us, but we have to listen for it. When Rwanda plunged into genocide, 24-year-old Immaculate Ilibagizo was sheltered by a minister who hid her and seven other women for three months in a three-by-four-foot bathroom, confined so closely the women could not even speak to each other for fear of discovery. Ilabagiza passed the time in prayer and contemplation. Gradually, she began to hear an inner voice. If you let go anger and have love in your heart, the voice told her, you can be okay. When at last she and her companions were rescued, Ilabagiza emerged with a message for humanity. We have a huge world inside, she says. We have so much power. Stop blaming and do your part. Our challenge is to respond differently. I've spoken before of Paula Darcy. At age 27, three months pregnant, Darcy was traveling on a Connecticut highway with her husband and 18-month-old daughter when a drunk driver crossed the divider and struck their car at 97 miles per hour. Her husband and daughter were killed. Darcy survived. In the agony of her recovery, she too heard the call of love. And she writes, love told me to fight. Fight. It's worth it. Fight to heal. Fight to recognize everything as a gift. Fight to eliminate the thoughts that poison your system 
unforgiveness, bitterness, regret, anger, guilt. Love asked me to stop focusing on what I didn't get and focus instead on who I might become, how I might love more deeply. Only I could decide what to do with pain. Love said that a real power lay within and I alone could decide whether or not to respond to its presence. Love encouraged me to take the first step forward. In the teeth of tragedy, Darcy chose to be transformed by love. We cannot embrace the full meaning of love, she writes, and live the same way we were living before. The hallmark of love is the change that arises. It is a question of what our lives generate. Am I generating a heart of dissent, a heart of judgment, a heart of complaint, a heart of love? Does my way of encountering the world serve me or life? Do I have what it takes to grant life to others? Am I willing to cultivate a greater heart? Instead of focusing on how someone else annoys me or gratifies me, how they make me feel, can I ask the question, what does this soul need? What does this soul need? need. If Immaculate Ilibagisa can hear the call of love in the Rwandan genocide, if Paula Darcy can hear the call of love as she grieves the loss of her husband and child, we can hear the call of love at First Parish in Cambridge. And when we hear the call of love, when we hear love's still, small voice whispering from the wreckage of our hopes and dreams, may we have the courage and the grace to answer. Amen and blessed be.